Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Hits Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we're going to be starting things off here in just a moment with, uh, of course, another uh, exciting discussion here on the panel, uh, Coach's Corner panel, and I'm going to introduce the guys here in just a moment. And a little bit later on, I'm... Uh, Extra excited, if you will, I'm going to be joined by Craig Can, uh, founder of the Can Advisory Group, and you may recall uh, he was a, a former uh, television broadcaster with the Golf Channel for many years and has done uh, radio on Sirius XM and also has his own uh, podcast, Tracks for Success. So uh, he's going to be joining me a little later on. I'm excited to have him on board, and uh, we're going to have a great show tonight. So let me uh, introduce the guys. We're, we're actually waiting for one, but I'm going to introduce the other guys and then uh, we'll keep an eye out for him as well. Uh, joining me on the show tonight is uh, PJ Teach Professional Brian Dobby. He works at the Trump National in Bedminster, uh, New Jersey, uh, formerly at the Montclair Golf Club, where he spent 18 years and won five New Jersey Section Awards. Uh, he was the 2012 Teacher of the Year and has been ranked as uh, number seven in Golf Digest Top Teachers in New Jersey. Also joining on the panel is Paul Castor. Uh, one of the country's leading golf coaches, recognized by Golf Digest as one of the country's best teachers uh, since 2017. Uh, twice been honored by U.S. Kids Golf as one of their top 50 kids coaches. Uh, Paul works with golfers of all skill levels, including professionals who have competed in uh, several majors. Uh, he serves on the advisory boards of several organizations, Foresight Sports and 4D Motion Sports, and is Level 2 and Junior Golf TPI certified. Also, Aimpoint Golf and Science and Motion Sports and a Level 3 Certified Super Speed Golf Coach. Uh, also, hopefully, joining on the panel is going to be John Hughes, uh, PJ Master Professional and Honorary President of the North Florida PJ Section. Uh, in 2013, uh, he was the uh, PJ of America's uh, Horton Smith Award recipient. Uh, he's also a senior editor and a Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 instructor, uh, plus part of Golf Tips' uh, top advisory staff. So we'll keep an eye out for him, guys. Uh, he should be... Uh, hopefully joining us. He may be running a little bit late on the range, so we'll see what uh, what happens. But all right, guys, so we're going to talk about tonight on the show, we're going to talk about uh, some of the ways of, and some of the key areas of hitting crisp irons. Everybody seems to really struggle. I did a poll recently through uh, Golf Tips uh, through our uh, email subscribers, and uh, one of the questions was what was, you know, if you had a, a free lesson, if you will, if you had a free golf lesson, what would you most like to have it focus on? And overwhelmingly, a lot of people said, I'd like to be able to hit my irons a little more crisp. So I uh, put together uh, five key tips, if you will, to help uh, master those uh, uh, crisp irons. And I'm going to start in the order that I introduced you guys. So Brian, I'm going to start with you. 
And one of the uh, key factors is uh, about keeping your head steady. Uh, this obviously makes things much easier. Uh, the average tour player moves their head about an inch during a swing. Uh, aver- or sorry, the yeah, tour player, but the average player uh, in many golf lessons, and you've probably experienced this, uh, tends to move their head much more than an inch uh, when they swing. So talk, you know, because we've heard so many things. You've got to keep your head steady. You've got to keep it down. You've heard so many things. What's sort of the generalization, if you will, or the truth about the head? What role does it play, if anything, in the golf swing? Is it to be rock steady, uh, or can there be some movement? And, and if so, which way can it uh, safely move without really impacting the swing? And, Brian, that's for you first. Thanks, Ed. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's great great to be back with you. Um, uh, concerning the irons, Ted, I think um, the, the head shouldn't be rock steady. The head moves in the golf swing, and having a thought of keeping it steady might restrict other parts of the swing, especially the back swing. I just think um, uh, hitting crisp irons, um, for, for most people – they typically have too much weight on their right side coming into the right. ball. They're, you know, leaning back. I'm talking higher handicap players. They kind of lean back and try mm-hmm. to lift the ball up in the air. So their angle of attack gets a little bit more ascending as they come into it, and that can lead to some tops and definitely not crisp iron. So I like to see mm-hmm. my players kind of favor their left side a little bit more at a dress. Um, so after they make their turn, they're coming into it and, um, getting a, a more descending a- angle of attack is going to really mm-hmm. get some crisp irons going um, right. for for your average player. I, I just see too much weight to the right in the upper body, mm-hmm. tilting to the right. Also, I think that's just a bad combination when it comes to hitting um, hitting good irons. Ted. So, Paul, let me ask you. I want to ask you this, the same question essentially, and just to specify a little bit more on on the head movement and that because there is obviously going to be some head movement but a lot of we see a lot of players a lot of amateur players specifically uh come out of posture a lot you'll see them either they'll sway quite a bit into the back swing and they get way off the ball and their head will move several inches in the back swing and then have to obviously uh compensate by moving several and then we'll see a lot of them uh, where their head will actually lift up uh because they're coming out of that posture and then they're going down as they're coming in through impact um so what role do you uh, see the, the head playing, uh, if any. What what typically is is an okay movement of the head, and what do you think is sort of a uh, you know you put a big X across it? Uh, well, I think you can uh, think about all of this in terms of sway, and that's pelvis sway and torso sway because your head's sitting on top of your torso, your torso is sitting on top of your pelvis, and we gathered a lot of data over the years um been teaching a lot lately with this new great technology sports box ai and phil cheatham is involved in that and he's shared a lot of cool data with us and we know that you know you're not likely to sway your upper body if your pelvis doesn't sway so if your pelvis sways your upper body's going to sway and if your upper body sways your head's moving um, you know, there's definitely a tendency among a lot of golfers to set up, like Brian said, if you're right-eye dominant, oftentimes you're going to tilt your head to the right so that you can see your target. And then that will tend to put your weight over your right foot, and you'll have a lot of right-side bend. And then it will be very difficult for the average person to 
feel what they need to feel that impact, which is weight forward, like Brian said, and and mm-hmm. your hips rotated to the left. Um, but, you know, a combination of setting up a little bit more stacked on top of the golf ball and then not, uh, you know, avoiding a, a sideways movement with your pelvis and feeling more rotation off the golf ball mm-hmm. is, is usually going to help a lot with keeping your head steady. I don't think people are super aware of where their heads are in space while playing a golf club, you know, so. Um, yeah, it's that, not something. Yeah. It's a roundabout yeah, it's answer a, to your question. But. Yeah, no, that, that's that's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not something that they're necessarily going to be conscious of. You know, we all, I always think back to when uh, Jack Nicklaus, uh, you know, used to talk about how Jack Grout used to, you know, grab his hair because he was moving his head too much and trying to keep it steady. And I think, you know, some of the more modern swings, you know, back then there was, you always had that sort of that reverse C, uh, and a lot of players, Johnny Miller was one that famously used to see it. So they, they tended to keep in, in, in sort of a earlier golf swings, you would see that their head would remain a little bit more steady than what you see today. Um, but again, there's no real try or true way. I think that the purpose of, of you know, in reference to the head is I think when you get too much lateral movement either way, and as both of you pointed out, you know, when your weight is sort of falling backwards, it's because you're not making a proper weight shift. And when you're doing that, that's going to obviously, if your body goes one way, your head, of course, is going to follow. Um, and, and that was really sort of the, Brian, you kind of jumped ahead on me here, but uh, really talking about shifting your weight forward with, with irons. A lot of players tend to, even at a dress, don't even get a, a 50-50 balance. They tend to actually have a lot of their weight because they're, they're trying to think, okay, I've got to really load up here on the right, uh, you know, for the right-handed golfers, and I've got to get, you know, loaded up in the backswing. So I'm going to kind of have my weight starting out a little bit more to the, to the back foot or the trail foot, and then they end up not being able to transition through impact and getting onto that left side. So do you have a drill or maybe a tip that you like to offer your students to help them uh, think about keeping that, that weight and keeping it forward uh, when you're working with their irons? Um, Ted, one of the drills I like to do is, um, you know, controlling the low point of the swing. Um, so I demonstrate, say, in a, in, I like to go into a sand trap so I can easily draw lines and stuff, but I'll draw a line in the sand and then I'll start making some divots with the emphasis on where my club's striking the ground, way to the, way to the right of that line, say the line's in the middle of my stance, and then I'll start moving it up towards the line in the sand and then what am I doing to create my my descent ahead of the line? And they, they notice that my weight's shifting to the left or I'm not leaning back to the right. So a, a good drill is finding out where the bottom of your swing is. And I like to, to, to have it bottom out to the right and to the left of my center point just so my students can learn. And then once we get it just to just ahead of that center line where that club strike in the ground. Let's put the ball there and try to create that um, downswing to get that crisp iron shot and get that divot in the right place. I, w- I would try that drill. Yeah, there's so many really good drills out there that, you know, obviously a, a lot of different coaches use. Um, Paul, what about yourself? I mean, I'm, I know you do a lot of drills and a lot of uh, practice sessions as well with your students of a variety of different players. Um, are there some drills that you've seen some of the better players that you've worked with that um, 
that have worked really, really well that you're now sort of transitioning uh, into some of your students that are sort of not le really learning the game, but uh, sort of starting out with a little bit, uh, uh, you know, less uh, skill level. What are some of the drills that you use to help get their uh, weight shifted forward? Um, well, yeah, and I think just to go back real quick, I think some of this also really depends on the person and their body. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, we know in our section, Mike Adams is a pretty well-known guy, and he's done a lot of great work on, um, you know, measuring people and understanding kind of their pivot styles and, definitely believe that, you know, he's been correct in, in some of that stuff too. But to answer your question, you know, if somebody is not, you know, transferring their weight and doesn't have, say, 80% of their weight on their front foot, which would be a good guideline, and I use a balance plate and a force plate to kind of measure that, um, you know, then uh, a good old-fashioned step drill, um, you know, uh, where as you take the club back, you're taking your lead foot and kind of stepping back towards your, your rear foot, your trail foot. And as the club reaches the top of the backswing, but not after, you're stepping and planting your front foot. So the golf club is still moving up while you're planting your left foot and, and then turning into the golf ball. And that also helps create some stretch. Uh, between your upper body and your lower body. So it helps with both kind of the sequence of the golf swing, but also proper use of your pressure. Um, so that would be a big one for proper proper use of the ground and weight shift, pressure shift. Um, and it's something, you know, I, I actually like motion drills a lot like that. So anything, you could cross your feet, cross your ankles and try to hit golf balls and, you'll realize pretty quickly that if you try to sway with your legs crossed, um, mm -hmm. you will fall, you'll fall down. You know, you, you're right. definitely not going to make it <laughs> make solid contact. So. Yeah, that's, that's a definite way to ensure, uh, that you're not going to sway too much is if you want to, uh, uh, fall either way. Um, and, and you're both are exactly right. You know, 80 to, uh, you know, uh, 80% or more, uh, of the touring professionals, uh, they're arriving at impact with their weight on their forward leg. So uh, in most of the average weekend golfers, uh, you're looking at a roughly about 55% of their weight. So there's a big difference, and obviously that's not going to work, and that's why you see the tour players are able to hit um, their irons so much more crisp. And, and just one more tip I want to throw out there, and this is one that I've used. It's been very, very common uh, for years, and that is uh, using um, a training stick or an old shaft in the ground uh, about a hand's width away from your front leg. And obviously the idea is as you're transitioning through, if you bump into the stick when you're swinging, you've moved your weight forward correctly. If you're not able to uh, or you're just barely touching it, um, then you know you're not transferring your weight. So, yeah, I like motion drills as well. There's a lot of good ones out there, and, and obviously you want to uh, reach out to your local golf professional and, and uh, if you're not currently taking lessons now. And if you're having issues hitting your irons, um, they've got some great tips and drills that can help you do that to make that transition and getting that proper weight shift. And, and again, for, um, for your irons particularly, you want to have like a feeling of your weight a little bit more on your forward leg. Another one too, guys, and uh, Brian, I'm going to come back to you, and we always hear about keeping the front wrist, and again, we're talking for right-handed golfers, so that would be your left hand, um, keeping that wrist flat. 
Um, you know, one of the things that we, we often see is a flat left wrist uh, sort of prevents the club passing uh, the front arm prior to impact, uh, swing flaw that generates a lot of fat and scald shots. So um, what do you think about that, and is there a tip or drill that you have for uh, having that feeling so that golfers understand the position of, of that front uh, left wrist in a case of a right-handed golfer or conversely the other right wrist if it's a left-handed? Uh, one of the things I like to do is, um, you know, on your on your lead side hand, if you have your golf glove on, I'll put like a um, a popsicle stick inside the glove along the left wrist there. So when you get up to the top of the swing, if if your wrist starts to cup a little bit, that that stick's going to go into your wrist, you know. And if you keep it flat, you know, obviously that's going to control the club face at the top. But you know, something that something that they can feel in the left wrist um, that keeps them out of that cupping motion at the top. And and that's that's a good drill that I use also, just putting something in my glove just to stabilize the wrist a little bit. That that seems to work for me, Ted, and I would recommend that. Is uh, well said. Um, Paul, I want to ask you, I'm going to move on because that's really not – I think too much more you could you could add to that. Um, no, there are only a couple of ways I think, to work on that, you know. But there's right, yeah. there's exactly. So I think yeah. he's pretty much uh, uh, covered that as well. So you know, one of the problems I think that a lot of golfers have with their irons is a sort of fear of um, taking a divot. And, and the reason why I say that it's it's a fear of really hitting the ground. And a lot of that goes to what you know you guys talked about a, a few moments ago, and that is coming in at a very steep angle of attack. So they kind of compensate. If they feel they're coming in too steep, they kind of back off a little bit and maybe even stand up out of it and that. Um, and, and that goes to what I was talking about earlier, about the head kind of going up and then coming back down to meet the ball. So they're not really you know, um, swinging at a, at a level keel, if you will. Uh, obviously, the club, goes, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, the club does go up and, and has to come back down to meet impact. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> but um, it, you're not. Your body isn't coming out of posture when you're doing that. So, what are some things that that you find that gives a lot of amateur golfers problem when it comes to their irons? The irons should be, uh, you know, we always hear about the driver, and we always hear about, well, they want to hit, hit it farther and so forth. But what are some of the things that you've seen uh, in some of your lessons that um, cause a lot of difficulty for? your students, uh, obviously prior to working with you, but uh, when you first start working with them, that giving them a lot of problem. What are some of the common faults, if you will, that you see uh, in good iron play with them? Um, well, you know, I think club face control is one of the things that <clears throat> is like a big separator between good players and and uh, less skilled golfers. Uh, you know, so elite level players, they're very aware of the club face and they know where it's pointing and then have a good sense for how to make the golf ball go where they want it to go with the club face. And I think um, for whatever reason, maybe it's just not as much practice, not as much time spent with a golf club in your hand. Uh, I don't see that understanding or connection or focus outside of themselves and externally on the target with, you know, a typical kind of 16 handicap club player. So mm. under, you know, getting, getting real aware of the tool and the, <clears throat> and the face and, 
you know, that we're hitting this ball with the face. We're trying to make the golf ball go somewhere. Um, that is a big thing. Uh, I think, you know, the other things that we see, just uh, open club face, holding the club in the wrong position, and you're especially in your left hand, um, you know, but your right hand is awfully important too and making sure that that kind of matches your body and the way your joints are lined up. And um, that can have a huge effect on on the path of the club, uh, club face control, low point control, you know, like Brian mentioned, trying to land. Very, very important. Probably the first most important thing in golf is that we get the golf ball first and then the ground, and we have to control the bottom of the swing at, to advance the golf ball uh, and and get it to go kind of in a predictable zone, you know, down the fairway. So mm-hmm. uh, your grip is your grip is awfully important for doing that. Um, you have to make sure that you're gripping it really much more in your fingers and in the left hand than I would. I typically see a lot of people. Um, and that'll allow you to close the club face a lot more easily. Yeah, and we tend to see a lot of people gripping it in the palms, and then they're not really getting uh, sufficient wrist cock either. So, um, and, and Brian, you know, I, I know you see a lot of, you know, different level players as well from, um, you know, some of our, our scratch golfers, if you will, and, and elite players, uh, right down to our, our, as we call them, our weekend warriors. Um, and I think, you know, Paul raises some interesting points, one being, you know, it all really starts with the grip. I mean, if you don't have a good grip, then the club face isn't probably going to be uh, coming in squarely at impact. And then also your balance, as we've talked about, if you're not balanced correctly and you're not setting up correctly, um, a lot of it points to that. But are there some other things, too? You know, is it just a matter of not understanding? Are they focusing too much on trying to get into the correct positions of their golf swing and not just letting it happen naturally. I mean, really, the golf swing is a natural movement. We're not forcing the movement. It's a natural swinging movement as we get into position and we swing the club. The weight of the club head can basically take us where we need to go and conversely when we're coming out through the downswing. So what is it in your opinion that a lot of golfers don't understand about the golf game and ultimately affects their iron play? Um, Well, it's a great point. I think with the average to high handicappers, I, I see them swinging at the ball instead of through mm-hmm. the ball. And I and I I always try to explain that you know the golf swing doesn't end at the ball. Try to just swing through and let the what's the club's responsibility? You know the club's responsibility is to to get through and 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 elevate the ball with the the, the face angle and stuff and. I just see I just see players all their energy is kind of going at it instead of through it. So that's mm-hmm. that would be a key point I would stress. But another point that we haven't talked about when it comes to Chris Byron's is I see a lot of higher handicap players with clubs that don't fit them. Maybe they're too yep. and typically they're too heavy and they have shafts that are way too stiff for them and heavy and that's definitely going to affect how you know, you hit your irons. I think making sure you have clubs that fit you with the right shaft and flex goes right into everything we're talking about tonight. Because if if the club is too heavy or too light, it's it's going to change the path of the club and how you release it and um, how much speed you create. And those are all important factors in hitting crisp irons, I think. 
Yeah, well said. Uh, and, and Paul, you know, something else too is is the actual swing itself. Um, you know, I this uh, winter I had the opportunity to visit the Q series for the LPGA and watch a lot of these young ladies as they uh, work towards earning their LPGA cards for 2022 season. And what was really interesting, uh, I managed to get up there bright and early every every morning for um, the four days that I was able to watch it, and went out to the range and actually watched them warm up. And what was really interesting, especially, you know, that worked with a lot of their clubs, but particularly with their irons, the one thing I really noticed that differs a lot from our amateur players is they tended to take the club away very slowly. Like it was very, almost methodical. It was sort of a slow, smooth, uh, up to the backswing, and there was a slight pause at the top. And then as they started to come through, it sort of slowly went, and then all of a sudden as they're coming into impact, you know, they would then uh, swing the club a little bit more effectively. Um, so it was a very deliberate movement. It was not just this sort of snatching back that we see a lot of amateurs do and then the sort of a deceleration coming through. Um, is that something that you notice too, sort of between the pros and the amateurs? I mean, obviously we see some players that really, you know, almost step out of their shoes on the PGA Tour. But for the most part, um, if you look at some of the real better players that, that have a lot of rhythm and, and tempo to their swing, um, they take it back really a little bit slower than what you would – typically see a lot of our amateurs do what do you think about that uh i think uh some of the players that we're seeing on the pga tour doing that like bryson <clears throat> know a lot of interesting things about you know about science and uh the kind of we would call it uh, the stretching and contracting that are that's happening in your backswing and to create speed and distance, you know, we've got to stretch muscle, muscles and then contract out of that stretch. I think with the, you know, what we see with the average person is that they're really swinging the club hard with their arms and their hands, and they're trying to create a lot of speed with their arms and their hands and, um, and not using the ground and their feet. And you can swing the golf club slower and, and feel the weight of it if you're driving the motion a little bit more with your lower body. Um, and the golf swing is a sequence. Um, mm-hmm. And so we don't, we don't, for the average golfer who might not be coordinated like Bryson DeChambeau, um, mm-hmm. might not practice as much as he has in his life, uh, you know, it's going to be easier to maintain your timing um, if you don't go extremely fast off the golf ball. And if you kind of make that smooth takeaway, you can load your body a little bit more effectively than maybe, you know, uh, than, you know, if you rushed your backswing and you went a little bit too quick. So I think tempo is a good thing to focus on. It's extremely important, important tempo and timing. And the average golfer would probably uh, do well to kind of slow the pace of their backswing down. So I think you're, those were some good observations, Ted. Yeah, I, you know, because I noticed that when I watched the the young ladies practicing, and even when they were out in the golf course, um, you know, they would go through their pre-shot routines. Um, but when they actually were swinging the golf club, they were very, as I said, very methodical in their backswing. Now, obviously, there there's exceptions to the rules. Some have a quicker tempo, so it, it actually appears like they're swinging faster than they are. But when you really sort of count it out, um, it's not as quick as it looks. And they're, again, they're getting themselves set 
there's that slight pause at the top, which a lot of amateurs don't do. A lot of amateurs do not. There, there's real no difference between their backswing and their transition. It just is back and, and back through again. There isn't a slight hesitation, and there should be. Again, it's it, it's very minimal uh, in the grand scheme of things, but nevertheless, it, it is, and it's because they need to get set before they begin their transition into the downswing and obviously swing, as Brian pointed out, swing through the golf ball. So um, it's just a very interesting thing. And I, and I wonder, as you pointed out as well, Paul, that if many of the amateurs would look at focusing more on, instead of club head speed and so on, working on their tempo and their timing and, and the transitioning of their swing from backswing to their follow-through with more of a um, an even pace, if you will, and not trying to sort of snatch the club back and then trying to rip it through or decelerate because they think, well, I'm going to hit it too far, so I've got to slow it down. And, you know, Brian, you mentioned as well not getting, uh, not actually following through. Uh, in some cases, they're sort of hitting the ball and then stopping shortly after, so they're not really getting the full effect of the golf club as well. So I think there's a lot of different factors. We've touched on a few of them here, um, and obviously with the benefit of seeing the golfer and what the specific problems might be, uh, makes it a little bit more challenging. But I think if they work on, uh, again, number one, make sure that you get in a good posture uh, and that you're well-balanced with your irons. You want to have your weight, as you both have mentioned, a little bit uh, towards your lead foot. Uh, that would be the left for right-handed, right foot for your left-handed golfer. And then, uh, you know, you want to make sure your grip is, is sound and that you've got the club face square at address. Um, so that way you're going to make good, solid contact with it. And then you want to make sure when you're going through the transition, you're not swaying uh, excessively in the backswing. And when you're coming through in the downswing, uh, that you're transitioning that weight onto the lead foot um, and following through. And I think if you do a lot of those things and do some of the drills that you've heard the guys mention earlier on, I think for you listeners out there, you're going to find you're going to hit your irons a little bit more crisper. And if you're still in doubt, I urge you to reach out. Uh, depending on where you are, you can uh, go online and you can... Uh, visit the PGA of America and, and search out uh, some professionals or the LPGA as well um, and search, search out a, a golf professional in your area uh, to help you with your game. All right, guys, I want to move on to a different topic. And as you both know, um, being up in the more of the Northeast, that we're looking at uh, beginning a new season for many. Uh, Brian, you mentioned that. I'm going to come to you first. So we're beginning a new golf season for many. Uh, some have already managed to get out there and swing a little bit. Um, but I think the first thing when you're uh, starting out uh, with a new year, because many people, especially up in the colder areas, uh, haven't really had as much time to practice. Maybe they don't have in indoor facilities to be able to work at. I think you have to begin every hole as though it's the first hole in your round. Obviously, you're going to hit number one. That is your first hole. But I think the first step in beginning a new season is to treat each hole as an independent and not worry about the scoring so much but just focus on the shots at hand. What are your thoughts um, with respect to that, uh, beginning every hole as though it's your first hole of the round? Uh, Ted, that's a great point. You know, just trying to stay in the, in the moment, I think. Um, you know, uh, most, most amateurs and high handicap players are always playing in the past and the future when they're playing. So if, you know, you look at every hole as a new hole, that first tee shot is – all you're thinking about. And I think that puts you right in the process, right into the present. And, uh, you know, I want you to visualize a nice tee shot and, and try to recall, you know, your last good swing that you hit with that driver. If it's a driver hole, I think, I think we play golf 
with our eyes and our recall, our memory and our feel, you know, try, try to really key on what that last good shot you hit felt like and visualize it. And I don't think a lot of amateurs do a lot of that. They're always kind of thinking of a body part or something to get their swing going. And they're forgetting about the ball flight. They're trying to see the trajectory they're trying to see. And I think, you know, pros, I think do a better job of that. And they, and they definitely stay more in the moment. So I guess if you look at every hole as that first hole, that I think that would be a good thought right there, Ted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, Paul, I think another area that needs to focus on, and this is um, especially when you're beginning a new season, because, again, you're, you, know, you don't want to be thinking about last season. You don't want to, especially if you've had some bad rounds or towards the end of the season, maybe things just didn't go as well. The last thing you want to do is start dragging that into a new season. So you've got to really develop an, uh, an ability to sort of block out um, that sort of that negative baggage, if you will, and also to be able to block out distractions. I mean, a lot of players, we've seen this many, many times, uh, even at the professional level, they'll be out of course, and maybe you get a little bit of a, uh, especially at the Phoenix Open, you get a lot of rowdy uh, in, the, in the crowds, and it's not always easy. Sometimes, you, you know, you just have to go with it and you play to it. But um, sometimes in a tournament when, when everything's, uh, um, you know, when all the marbles are, are you know, in play, um, you know, you have to be able to block that out. And that's where, you know, practicing sort of getting into a mental zone um, becomes uh, paramount. What are your thoughts here? And what can, what can a golfer do to sort of help um, keep away or block out those distractions? What are some things that they can be saying to themselves or doing to practice that? Um, boy, there's a lot there. That's, uh, yep. <laughs> Lots to unpack. The, uh, I think we need to be in the present. Like Brian said, um, I sometimes tell people, you know, every shot in the golf course has the same value, which means, you know, whether, whether it's the first shot on, uh, on your first tee shot or the third shot on 18, you have to give that shot the same amount of focus and, and just be there and focus on all of the factors that you have to take into account to hit it, to hit a good shot. Um, I've been meditating for about five or six years and it's amazing how mm-hmm. close that actually feels to being in the zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been lucky to be kind of in flow playing golf, uh, you know, a few times in my life. And so would highly recommend people start learning about that. Um, if you haven't started doing it already, uh, TM is, is really useful. Um, controlling your breathing and learning mm-hmm. how to can be aware of your breathing. Um, if you get bent out of shape, uh, you know, it, don't let it last for very long. You're going to hit some bad shots. Um, you're playing an obstacle course, you know, so <clears throat> the course is going to challenge you and you're going to make some mistakes, uh, but you have to be able to, to get past those pretty quickly. And, um, and control your emotions and breathing and controlling your breathing uh, makes a, a, you know, world of difference toward those other things, you know, that I mentioned, like uh, controlling your emotions and the meditation stuff. And I actually, I mean, I use that all the time on when I'm playing now. Um, 
and I teach it to my clients, um, and it, and it helps them. So that's what I would suggest. Yeah. Yeah, those are some great points. You know, because I, I, especially early on in the season, guys, you know, a lot of players are very anxious. Um, they get anxious. They're nervous. They're not sure how they're going to do this season. And there's a lot of anx- anxiousness in the world right now, Ted. Too. Right. Well, yeah. There's. Yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah. We having all that factored in as well is just doubly uh, more. But uh, for sure. And and you know, when you do that, then the anxiety sort of sets in. And people get up there and, you know, we always talk about the first tee jitters, uh, you know, knees are knocking and whatever, always worried about hitting those first few shots. Um, so, yeah, learning uh, proper breathing techniques can help calm, uh, you know, those nerves down a little bit. And obviously, you know, little nerves is okay, but I think, um, you know, some good breathing te- techniques and, and meditation for some that uh, ha- has worked as well. So there's a lot of different things. Um, you know, a lot of professional sports athletes now, are actually even turning to things like yoga, uh, believe it or not. Even um, I know Catherine Roberts, who uh, t- has taught yoga for golfers for a number of years, is actually teaching um, several teams in the Major League Baseball League um, yoga, uh, various different stretching and yoga positions to help um, get them. It's not so much about getting them into shape, but getting them more relaxed and being able to uh, loosen up and be ready for the game. And it's been very, very successful. So there's a lot of different things that you can do. And I know, Paul, you... Uh, touched on a few there and I think they're extremely important because it's it can be very stressful for a person that uh, again that's not an elite uh, player or elite level uh, to be able to get out there and especially early in the season um, Brian I think another thing too that um, we often see a lot of amateurs neglect and I know that the pros do they may not talk about it but I know that they do that um, and that is setting some small goals uh, for e- for not just the overall season uh, obviously, we want to improve and, and lower our scores over the season, but we need to set some small goals even for each round of golf, um, number one, that are achievable, and, and number two, that are realistic. Um, what are your thoughts here? And, and maybe give us some examples of what maybe um, a, 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 some, some goals might be that a golfer, especially a high handicapper, might want to set for themselves early in the season. Let's, let's talk about... Um for a single round, Ted, what I like to do is teach my students to have a dream goal, an intermediate goal, and then a satisfactory goal for your round of golf. So say, say you typically shoot 80 for a round of golf. So the satisfactory goal for that day would be shooting, shooting an 80. The intermediate goal would be, say, shooting a 76 or 77. And the dream goal for that day would be for that player, maybe shooting less than 75. And I think where amateurs, um, their expectations, I think they typically play in the dream state where um, they think today's going to be my day. I hit it really well on range. And when we tend to play in the dream state or the dream goal, we have too much pressure on our subconscious because say we, we bogey the first couple holes and, and you're saying to yourself, man, today was going to be my best day. Um, but if we play with a satisfactory goal for the day, it gives us a little leeway subconsciously. So if we do have a couple bogeys or whatever, satisfactory would have been an 80 for that, for that, that player that day. And I, and I think, um, you know, when we get ahead of ourselves and we put too much expectations on our game, that tends to get the game going in the wrong direction. And that's where I, I see a lot of amateurs 
Um, that's where the rounds fall apart. So I break it down to dream goal, intermediate goal, and satisfactory goal for that day. And you have to be realistic. I think, I think mm. if you can be realistic and say, hey, you know, I'm really not hitting it that good today, maybe my satisfactory goal might be an 82 or an 83. Just, you know, you have to be realistic when you set those goals. And I don't think amateurs tend to deal with reality that much. They, they tend to mm-hmm. overthink overthink or their their capabilities or their skill level sometimes. So um, that's where I would go with that one, Ted. Dream, satisfaction, yeah, and, and intermediate goals. Yeah, and certainly some good ones. And I think also, too, um, we see a lot of, uh, you know, players um, that might even want to simplify it even more and maybe just the fact of getting out there and, and 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 swing with a fluid swing and not merely so much worried about the score even uh for those that maybe really struggle with their game you know for a little better player if you know if they're shooting 80 they're they're typically a little bit better player still not certainly a scratch player but uh certainly getting up there uh they've probably over the years have knocked a few strokes off so they're you know they're wanting to um just get out there and and keep keep the the run going if you will and sometimes it's just a matter of just going out there and, and keeping the swing fluid and just getting warmed up and, and for the season, not try to be unrealistic in, you know, early on in the season. You know, let's see how things are going to go and, and see where they're going to happen um, and then progress as we move along. And, 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 Paul, this sort of brings us to the last one. This is one I know we've talked about many, many times on the Coach's Corner, and that is really developing a, a really good pre-shot routine, uh, especially early in the season. I mean, people have had pre-shot routines in their in their golfing life, but a lot of times when we move from season to season, things might need to be adjusted or might need to be re, redefined or or fine tuned. Um, but that should be one too. I think that should be something a goal to set from day one is let's get out there and let's create a uh, maybe a new pre-shot routine that's going to be uh, effective uh, throughout the day, or even redefine. Um, an existing one, maybe retune it a little bit or adjust it or make sure that we're doing things correctly. So maybe walk us through a little bit of that, if you wouldn't mind, on the importance of the pre-shot routine and how we can get off to a good start for the season. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think the European Tour did a study a while ago, and um, I think they, they studied top 75 players on tour, and the the guys who, and this is the men's tour, uh, the guys who had a very consistent pre-shot routine kind of went through this, a similar, you know, sequence of steps um, and spent three seconds or less over the golf ball, uh, made the cut. I may, I may be flipping these numbers, but made the cut 50% more of the time and made 40% more money. Um, mm-hmm. So process is incredibly important. Um having a predictable kind of tempo and timing to not just your golf swing, like you mentioned before, but the timing of your preparation for the shot uh, and your pre-shot routine. So the way I kind of describe this a lot of the time is uh, you plan, you prepare, and then you execute. Um, Mm -hmm. So you plan, you have to have a plan for the shot based on what the golf course is asking you to do based on the situation and that's when you choose your club and you, the kind of shot that you're going to play and then you prepare 
taking practice swings and kind of visualizing the shot and trying to figure out how do I need to swing this golf club to make the shot happen. Um, and then execute is you set up to the golf ball, put the club behind it, aim it, and um, get your feet set and then go and trust what you just prepared. And if mm-hmm. generally speaking, if you follow those, those steps, you know, without overthinking the mechanics of your swing and focusing on the shot, you're going to, you're going to do a lot better. Um, and, and then getting in a consistent kind of timing of that and actually sometimes actually timing how long it takes. You can videotape yourself doing a pre-shot routine. You can look at how long it takes, or I guess we don't say videotape anymore. I'm dating myself, but you can film yourself <laughs> on your, on your phone and, uh, and, um, you know, time how long it takes from, uh, when you pull the club out of your bag to when you hit the golf ball, how long it takes for you to make the decision. Once you put the bag down, um, all things that, you know, you can kind of look at and sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer, but the the longer you spend making a choice, usually, the less committed you're going to be, and we need mm-hmm. to we need to be committed to make good golf swings too. So, yeah, I could uh, all things I think that that anybody can do really. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one other thing too is you know once you've taken those steps and you've you know executed a, a successful <clears throat> pre-shot routine and you've now um, you know hit the shots, even if it doesn't come off the way that you want it to. Um, let's say, you know, you wanted just to, you know, hit it up the left side of the fairway a little bit because that's going to give you a better approach to the green. Even if you end up over on the right, rather than assessing everything then, make notes. Make notes, you know, keep a, a little pad of paper with you in your back pocket You can get a, and just make a note uh, on each hole. Uh, if, the, you know, how many putts you made, keep stats and record that information. And then analyze it a little bit later on after the round uh, or when you're with your coach the next time and go over some of the points and say, here's, here's what I was trying to do on this hole here, and here's what ultimately ended up happening. And then you can look at and find, isolate some of the areas of your game that might be, might be struggling with. Um, but the other thing, too, is just about the pre-shot routine. We often, and I know you both have seen this as well uh, on the practice tee, and that is you will see somebody start off the first couple of holes um, with the same routine. And as soon as the proverbial wheels fall off the bus, the routine changes. Suddenly, their pace is quickening up. Uh, suddenly, instead of two waggles, it's one waggle, or maybe it's three or four waggles. They're gripping and regripping the club, and it's an entirely different routine. By the time they get to about hole number four or five, the pre-shot routine they once had is completely gone. It's now morphed into something else. So you've got to find something that you're comfortable with and works, and even if it's not working, the way you had hoped it was going to work, you don't want to change it mid-round. You want to wait, and that's something you work on the next time you go to the practice range uh, or you're with your coach and say, you know what, we need to find something that's just not holding up. Um, and then once you do, you have to stick with it. I think too many people give up too easily because, you know, as, as we all know, the, even the, the average tour player is not hitting every shot the way they want every single time. They're missing shots. They're not hitting it exactly the way they want, but they're not changing their routines. They still follow the same pre-shot routine. They still go through the same steps for every single shot throughout the round. 
and then they deal with it afterwards. When they're off the golf course, and if there's some minor tweaking or adjustments, that's when they do it. And I think that's what a lot of golfers uh, fail to do in, in the uh, high handicap range. The other thing is, uh, Brian, I'm going to give uh, you the sort of the last question here, is sure. what can we do overall as we get ready to prepare for this season? What should we be doing now? If you're just coming out uh, of hibernation, shall we say, what's the first thing that you want to do? Uh, what are the first steps as a player that you want to do before you start getting into a full season? A, cu- a couple things on that, Ted. I, th- I think starting out the season, I like to work more on my short game to just get a feel for playing the game again, you know, hitting putts, hitting lag putts, and then moving into chipping and then pitching. I like a lot of small swings knowing that that's going to gradually feed into my full swing. I think most amateurs go directly to the driving range, you know, full swing driver. They wear themselves out quickly. They get tired uh, physically and mentally and they start chasing it. And I, I think they need to go, work from the hole out in the spring and gradually build up some stamina to, for the full swing. Stay, stay off the range as much as you can and, and let your game come back that way. You know, I've been playing golf my whole life, and I, I still like to – let me get a putter in my hand first, and what's it feel like to hit the middle of the putter and hit some 40, 50-foot putts and then chip and putt, chip and pitch and hit a couple bunker shots before I go to the range and, and hit, hit the full swings. I think, I think the other thing, I think you need to start getting into shape to play in the spring. So if, even if you don't have time to practice and hit balls, go out and walk for a couple miles just to get your legs underneath you. That's... Because once, mm-hmm. as we know, once our legs go, the swing's going to go. I think getting in shape mm-hmm. is important also as we start the spring. But I, I would start with the short game and let that feed into my full game in the spring. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, mm-hmm. you know, we're not in shape to play a lot, and I see a lot of people injuring themselves quickly because they're hitting too many balls on the range. You, you got you got to pace yourself in the spring. That would be my advice. Yeah, and I think uh, just – Final point, um, uh, Paul, to, to add to that would be, um, in addition to keeping yourself in shape, is nutrition. Uh, a lot of times we see golfers out there that don't keep, uh, not only do they not keep themselves in very good shape, uh, but they don't really eat very well. And they get out there and by the time they hit the turn, um, they're running out of steam. They're not eating very well. They're not eating good nutritious food. And again, I'm not suggesting you, we all have to jump on some special diet. But I think if you want to be a better player, especially when you start getting into the warmer climates and warmer temperatures, uh, if you're not hydrating and you're not keeping yourself fueled properly, you're going to run out of steam uh, well before your round uh, hits that turn. Uh, any thoughts or suggestions as we get ready to wrap up uh, on what we can do to, to help uh, prevent that? Uh Absolutely true about nutrition and hydration. I see it actually with some pretty accomplished junior golfers. Uh, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't really matter, I think, who you are. You have to take care of yourself and take care of your body. And, you know, Dobbs mentioned some of those things. And um, I've known Brian for a while, so sometimes I slip into his nickname. But, um, yeah. you know, I think 
you know, it's important to take care of yourself. You're, you're physically, you have to, you know, golf is an explosive, it's a, an explosive motion, the golf swing. Um, you're walking uh, a fair amount. Even if you ride, you're still going to be walking a fair amount. Um, and pack a peanut butter and honey sandwich and some cashews and maybe a pear um, and a hydration mix from like, you know, Shackley actually makes a really good one. Noon. There's a bunch of different product out there that will just give you the electrolytes you need and keep your brain functioning. You see a lot mm-hmm. of people who start to kind of flag or fail coming down the back nine and it's more likely from poor nutrition, eating a hot dog at the turn and getting your, yep. you know, getting a spike of blood pressure or whatever, you know, blood sugar and uh, nitrates and then, and then you kind of crash. So, you definitely need to take care of uh, fueling your body because you're out there for, you know, four and a half, five hours sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's where we see a lot of, you know, many of our high handicap golfers spend so much time trying to perfect and work on their golf game, uh, but they forget about the other aspect of it, and that is themselves. Uh, if you're not keeping yourselves in shape, and again, you know, when – we get it when you get up near 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and whatnot, and you're still able to get out there and play. Um, you know, you're not thinking about running marathons. Um, you know, maybe you have to make other adjustments. Uh, you know, as we get a little bit older, maybe instead of playing 18, maybe just nine uh, might be another alternative. Uh, so that way you've still got some energy uh, a little bit. Maybe doing 18 when you're 80 years old is, is not, um, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that you can't, but that may be something, a factor you may want to look at. And, or maybe even, you know, uh, pay, play a little more than nine. Maybe not play quite the full 18. Maybe just play a dozen. Uh, a lot of courses are offering different packages like that now. So you can play uh, nine plus a couple extras. And, and uh, so, you know, being able to be fresh while you're out there, uh, hydration, not just drinking water, but uh, replenishing those electrolytes and, and other uh, things, fueling your body, uh, is going to make a world of difference at any age. And uh, you're exactly right, Paul. I think that uh, that's an area that gets overlooked even by junior golfers. We see a lot of junior golfers think, well, I'm 20 years old or I'm 18 years old and it's not a big deal. I can get out there and, you know, I can handle 100-degree weather. Um, but, you know, when you're out there uh, for two or three rounds in a tournament, um, and especially when it starts getting a little steamy, as it will here in a few months, um even the youngest uh, start to feel a little bit flustered, uh, so it's always important to do that. But uh, great discussion, guys. Uh, I know we kind of covered a, a few different things here, but I uh, appreciate, uh, as always, and, and unfortunately, John uh, wasn't able to, to make it tonight, um, obviously, as, as many of us are. He uh, probably uh, was busy out in the golf course a little bit longer, but uh, I know he'll uh, join us on another uh, show as well. Uh, but what I want to do is give each of you guys an opportunity uh, to let the folks know if they want to reach out. So, Brian, we'll go with you and then Paul. Sure, Ted. Uh, first off, thanks for having me on the show. It's always great to be a guest. And, Paul, it was a pleasure sharing uh, golf talk with you. And uh, I'm going to take you up on that meditation. That's something we haven't talked about. So, um, yeah, Ted, I'm going to reach at um, Trump Bedminster here in uh, beautiful Bedminster, New Jersey. Um, my phone number is 
yahoo.com. Thanks again, Ted. Always a pleasure, Brian. Thank you. And Paul? Uh, Ted, thanks again so much. And Brian, you're welcome anytime to come down for a meditation session. Um, <laughs> I'm located in Little Silver, New Jersey. And um, if anybody ever wanted to come visit and see the Jersey Shore, it's lovely here in the summertime especially. Um, my website is Paulcaster. K-A-S-T-E-R, golf.com. My number is 732-529-2222. And you can always reach me at info at paulcastergolf.com um, uh, or my assistant. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Ted, and look forward to speaking to you guys soon. All right. Well, thank you both, and have a great weekend. And uh much continued success uh, as you get ready to start a new season, um, especially up there in the Northeast. And I look forward to having you guys join me again on another Coach's Corner panel. But thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Ted. Thanks. Good night. All right. That was Brian Dobby and Paul Castor joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. As I mentioned, John Hughes, unfortunately, uh, wasn't able to join us tonight, but uh, we'll get him the next time. All right. I'm going to take a short, uh, quick break uh, to hear a message from Golf Tips Magazine. And then I will be ready to bring on my very special guest tonight, uh, Craig Can. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, Simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. All right, I'm very uh, excited to be joined by my special guest this evening, Craig Can. Uh, most of you may. Uh, remember him from his days on the Golf Channel. He was a uh, broadcaster there for, I think, about 17 years. Um, he is now the founder of the CAN Advisory Group. Uh, in addition to that, he's also an executive branding and uh, presentation skills coach, offering corporate keynotes, workshops, and webinars. And he's also an award-winning and best-selling author, uh, hosts uh, currently uh, uh, of SiriusXM and Tracks to Success podcast. And as I mentioned, he's also... Uh, a network TV broadcaster. Uh, we'll just wait. He's uh, going to be joining us momentarily, but uh, very, very excited to uh, have him join us. And uh, while I wait for him to uh, officially come on board, in fact, here he is now, so let me bring him out. Good evening, Craig, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. How are you all doing? I'm doing very well. I appreciate it, Craig. Thank you for for joining me tonight, and um, I'm really looking forward to this. I've been a big fan of yours. I've watched you over the years uh, doing a variety of different things, and obviously I remember you from the, uh, uh, not to date myself, but I remember you from the Golf Channel um, when you uh, uh, served there for many years as one of the broadcasters and always enjoyed your commentary and, and your uh, reports and so forth. So a uh, big fan of yours. But I want to dial back a little bit because um, I know we want to obviously talk about um, uh, the CAN Advisory Group. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I just want to 
um, sort of go back a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, and what was it about golf that initially appealed to you? What was it about that, and when did you first sort of get bitten by the bug? Well, first off, let me just say this. Um, the fact that you said you're a big fan, and, and whether you date me or not, uh, going back that many <laughs> years, um, I'm grateful and uh, really thankful that you would have me on and um, and still care. You know, I mean, it's it's been a while. I was there from 1995 until 2011, and one of the original six on-air personalities in the studio. So mm-hmm. I've got a, a very fond uh, you know, recall and memory of my days at Golf Channel. There's no way that I'm sitting here talking to you uh, if not for my Golf Channel days. There's no way there's a can advisory group, honestly, if not for my career at the Golf Channel and where it led me. And so all those things kind of tie together, and, and that's the beauty of it. So I truly appreciate that. Very kind of you. Um, as far as, you know, where I got the bug, um, I'm going to go back. I'm, I'm going to pull a Tiger Woods from his speech uh, at the World Golf Hall of Fame and say, I'm going to go retro on you and um, say that I'm going to go back to my uh, my days in, like, junior high, you know, uh, seventh, eighth grade and, and into early high school. My grandfather helped teach me the game along with my dad, and there was a par three mm-hmm. course in Chicago that I used to play all the time, and, and that's where I really started having a good time with it. I – I did not play high school golf. I played football, basketball, and baseball. And yet in college, uh, a bunch of my buddies in my fraternity were, were golfers, and I had my clubs. That was my high school graduation gift. And, and so I played a little bit uh, on the side um, when I wasn't going to parties at my fraternity, you know, and doing the other <laughs> things. And, and right. when I left Missouri uh, and the journalism school, my first job there was in Columbus, Georgia, and that's not all that far away from Callaway Gardens where the PGA Tour had an mm-hmm. event. And then I, um, mm-hmm. I went from there to Fort Myers, Naples, Florida, and there was a Champions Tour event down there for a number of years, still is down there. And then I went to Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and there was a Champions Tour event there. So I was very into covering golf. I had a lot of it uh, you know, in my back pocket, so to speak, in my resume tape and whatnot of, things that I covered and that helped me land the golf channel job as a reporter and and an on-air host uh, there at the earliest time of the golf channel days. So I I really had the bug, if if I'm honest, um, when I was younger and in high school, I really enjoyed the par three course and playing in suburban Chicago. And and I just took it from there. I'm not saying I'm a great player. My best handicap ever was uh, a 4.7. My son actually asked me that question today, ironically enough. But, um, but I've always enjoyed the game. Obviously, you have to, to to do what I've done. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it's always interesting. I always enjoy hearing, uh, you know, somebody's journey, if you will, in golf. I mean, obviously, I teach golf and uh, besides doing what mm-hmm. I'm doing here. Um, and, and I've always enjoyed that. And, you know, when I was younger, you know, you always sort of fantasize. Uh, you know, I grew up, I'm 58, so it gives you next week, actually, uh, gives you an idea of what range I'm in. So I grew up you know, watching the Nicholases and the Palmers and the, you know, Gary Player and that sort of thing. And you always sure. kind of fantasize about, you know, boy, I wish I could battle it out with those guys out in the golf course, but it just wasn't in the cards for me. And I was always a good, um, you know, I, I always considered myself a good teacher in the sense that no matter what it was I was doing, I was always able to articulate um, the points that I needed to to help somebody else learn. So, you know, at very early, and I'm going to digress here for a second and get off of myself, but um, basically that's what led me down the path that I am now. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And I had, you know, I had mentors and that as I was growing up, as I'm sure you did. So I'm curious, 
did you have a personal and or professional mentor and who were they and what did they uh, do to inspire you to become who you are today? Well, it's interesting uh, that you would ask that question. When I was in Fort Myers, um, and, and, you know, not that this gentleman would be listening, but um, I was working at Wink TV, the CBS affiliate down there. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I covered football and college football, the NFL with the Buccaneers and the Dolphins and whatnot. But Nolan Hankey was the PGA Tour professional down in Fort Myers mm-hmm. at that time and won three times on the PGA Tour. His teacher was a guy by the name of Mike Calbot, Mm C-A-L-B-O-T. And at the TV station that I worked at, um, Mike had a segment on each week called um, The Golf Doctor, and uh, Mm -hmm. he would do golf tips. And my job as the number three sports guy on that staff, I, I was a reporter, but I was also the videographer, was to go shoot these tips and produce them uh, for air uh, on on the affiliate TV station, the CBS affiliate WINK TV. So I was down there with Mike, you know, every week uh, shooting video tips, and Nolan would come out there every now and again, and and I I got lessons from Mike, and he worked on my game a little bit, and uh, took a liking to me, and and we became friends, and to this day we still keep in touch. Um, I I really found myself um, enamored at that at that time by trying to get better you know, and finding ways that I could that, that I could play the game and play this course or that course. And uh, all the guys that were kind of in that um, in that market at the time, you know, we played some golf together. And then same thing, when I got to Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, Michigan, you want to talk about a state that has great golf. I mean, everybody thinks Florida mm-hmm. or Arizona or California or Texas or whatever, but Michigan has so many great golf courses. And I would play all the time in Kalamazoo. In fact, uh, the other sportscaster – at the station that I worked at, his name was John Koch, and we were uh, we were there at the CBS affiliate. There, we created uh, in West Michigan the Coke and Can Fantasy 18 golf holes, and it was 18 <laughs> holes from 18 different golf courses, um, wow. and it had to add up to 72. And we we took par fours, par threes, par fives, and the great right. thing about it was all these these courses, you know, fell in love with the concept too because they got publicity. And we actually made a scorecard and, and printed it and then had it at all the golf courses in the area so people could go, wow, you know, we're playing the, this little par three at Lake Doster was the name of that course, and it was one of, the, one of the holes on the Fantasy 18. And then on Solstice, you know, the longest day of the year, um, mm-hmm. we played, no joke, all 18 holes in one day. Now, these are holes all over West Michigan. We had to rent a uh, – we we got a limo, and they picked us up at about wow. 4 o'clock in the morning. And we started in Benton Harbor, Michigan, and uh, teed off on the first, first hole at 6 a.m. or whatever. And we did live reports for the noon news, the 5 o'clock, the 6 o'clock, and we wrapped it up at <laughs> 11 o'clock at night with our last hole of the day. And lo and behold, no, mm. no joke on this story, the sprinklers went off while we were live on the air at 11 o'clock at night, and, and it was kind of fitting. So, you know, we still talk about that stuff, but, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying I, I played a lot of golf in Michigan and uh, really fell in love with the sport then. Yeah, and there's some beautiful courses up there. A lot of people, uh, you know, obviously the people that have played golf for any length of time are familiar with the Michigan area, but there are some beautiful tracks uh, and just beautiful countryside as well. Um, and, you know, because it's a shorter season, obviously, than what we would have here uh, in Florida or other parts, um, you don't think of it as much. And, you know, there's beautiful lakes and there's so many other things to do up there. 
Um, but uh, Michigan has really come in on its own over the over the years uh, as a as a really a great golf destination. So I, I concur, and that that's a really an interesting challenge. That would be a great um, you know a, a guy's challenge, if you will, to to do exactly what you did is just to. Uh, you know, string uh, some holes together and, and get. And there's actually a book, and I'm going to have to get the information. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but there was a book that was written. I had a guest on years ago that wrote it, and I can't think of his name off the top. But the um, book was called King of Clubs, and it was a gentleman out of Chicago, very wealthy gentleman, and he actually did something similar. He actually hopped on, of course, his private jet, and he flew um to several golf courses in the same day i think he hit seven or eight golf courses in the same day and played a you know handful of holes each one hopped on the plane and went on and he did something he wrote it was in this book and i'll have to get the information you might want to look it up because i think you'd find it very interesting but uh, certainly a lot of similarities um craig i want to get your thoughts on today's game what do you think of the the current game that we're seeing out there today uh, both the men's and the women's, and I just have one thought I want to inject into this before you answer. Do you think the the men's game has become too much of a power game? I'll start with the last question first, and my answer to that is yes. Um, mm-hmm. The other night on my radio show on SiriusXM, DJ Tour Radio, it's called Connected with Craig Can, Tuesday night, 6 to 8, shameless plug. Uh, that's Eastern time. Yeah, that's okay. Um, Go ahead. I was actually talking about this because, you know, Tiger was being inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame, and mm-hmm. I am obviously a huge Tiger Woods fan for all that he's accomplished right. in the game and having covered him in the game, and, and I can tell you stories about that too. Uh, but my whole thing is I, I feel like um, he deserves his rightful place at top, the PGA Tour win mm-hmm. list. I hope he gets one more. Now, how is he going to do that? I don't think he's going to do that playing today's game um, like everybody's no. playing it. I don't think he can hit it far enough. I don't think his body can handle that. I don't think his leg will be able to handle that. I think he's going to have to do it on different types of golf courses. Now, having said that, mm-hmm. uh, my favorite courses have been and will always be courses that most people don't think are, are long bomb, bomb golf courses. I'm not a huge fan of Torrey Pines. I'm not, it doesn't mean I don't like going there or, or that venue. Right. It's not my favorite PGA Tour event by any stretch. Um, I always, right. when I was covering golf, Wanted to go to, to Milwaukee, to Brown Deer Park, because I thought it was an awesome venue. I'm from Chicago, so I love Cog Hill, which wasn't the longest mm-hmm. golf course in the world. Um, I'm a big fan of Harbortown Golf Links. I love Colonial Country Club. I think Hartford is a wonderful venue. And we could go on and on mm-hmm. down the list of golf courses that I believe um, the PGA Tour should never lose off their schedule. And um, I right. think Tiger... Uh, would do himself a great service and everybody else a great service by going back to some of the venues that gave him a, a first shot on the PGA Tour with uh, sponsor mm-hmm. advice. You know, play some of the courses that, that he might not necessarily have put on his schedule back in the day and try to win on right. those tracks. I mean, look, he could get Stinger Three Woods or all around Harbortown off the tee or Irons or whatever he needs to do. Same thing with Colonial. Shape his shot yep. and, um, and have a chance to win a golf tournament. I don't think he's going to do it at some of the other places. I mean, obviously, Pebble Beach is not a long golf course. It plays longer when it's wet. But you get my point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a right. huge fan of, the, of the, uh, the bomb and gouge and all that sort of good stuff. Um, I, I, I don't enjoy that. I don't love hearing when they all said he had to drive 353 yards. That doesn't get me excited to watch golf. I like shot making. No. I always have. I love watching guys with great swings. Um, you know, you go back to 
the players like Tom Pertzer, or you go look at Steve Elkins mm-hmm. and a good, good golf swing, yep. you know, Tom Weisskopf back in the day. Those are the, the, the types of players that I've always enjoyed. David Toms comes to my mind as well. And mm-hmm. um, yep. that's the type of golf that I enjoy watching, always have, always will. You asked me about the PGA Tour and, um, and the state of the game in, in men's and women's golf. Um, I'll answer it this way. The world ranking right now has five players at the top in the men's game that are uh, under the age of 30. And uh, John Rahm, Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, uh, Scheffler's in there. And uh, why am I drawing a blank on, on the fourth player? But you, you get my point. These guys sure. are young. They're great. Um, we, are, we are watching a different era. Now, many people would have said the game's never going to be the same without Tiger Woods. It's no good anymore. I actually believe it's never been better. I love the volatility. When, when all of a sudden Justin Thomas is, you know, nearing 10 in the world and Dustin Johnson's, I think, number nine right now, I think JT's number eight, um, that mm-hmm. says something about the skill level that's in the game of golf at this current, at this current time. I love that. I love the fact that um, we don't know who's going to be number one. You know, this week alone, Rom was like, he had no idea that he could be unseated at number one until somebody told mm-hmm. him. And that's, that's great. That's, that's fantastic. I, I love that. And, uh, and so I'm a big fan of where the PGA Tour is right now. Look, I wish Ricky Fowler would play better golf, and I wish he was still relevant. It's hard for me to believe that he's, you know, not in the mix. Um, a guy like Jordan Spieth has to work harder to stay relevant. I mean, the PGA Tour is in a point right now where, a spot in the top ten in the world golf ranking, um, and a PGA Tour card alone is on loan. It is on loan. Yep. You borrow it, and you you have to work hard. Nothing is a given, and you you get what you earn, and that's just the way it is. Um, so, I'm I'm a big fan of where the PGA Tour is right now. I love the stories. I love the different uh, winners that we get from week to week. I don't really care who plays what week and when they take weeks off and this field's weak and this one's strong. I've never bought into all that sort of nonsense because when, mm-hmm. when the top guys don't play for a given week, we seem to get the best stories. And, um, and I love that. As far as the women's game is concerned, look, I think you know I spent five years as chief communications officer at the LPGA after I left my right. TV career. And um, I spent a lot of time with, with the, the ladies and, and the top female, in my opinion, athletes in sport. And they are the best ambassadors of their brand in all of sport. The only issue they've ever had is that they haven't had a big enough platform uh, or a tall enough mountain to climb to the top of to shout the message about all the great things they do, the skill they have. And, and that's one of the things that I spent five years working with them on, with how to tell their story and how to promote um, themselves and also the tour game. I, I think, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends uh, that are on that tour. You know, Stacey Lewis was on my mm-hmm. show recently and, uh, I'm a huge fan. Suzanne Pedersen is one of my best friends in the game of golf. Uh, flew me to Oslo twice to MC her charity event. And uh, I just I love the way they approach it. Their golf swings are great. I mean, if you spend any time around Inby Park, and for those people who are like, oh, there are too many international players or, or too many from Asia that are on the tour, let me tell you something. Um, I used to do press conferences and choreograph press conferences to bring them up there to show off how well they speak English and how dedicated they are to the tour and to living in the United States. The thing that people Mm -hmm. don't realize and that I think they take for granted is, for for example, if you go back to the Olympics in 2016, uh, Lydia Ko won a medal, Inby Park won the gold, 
and Shen Shen Feng won the bronze, all right? Those are three right. different countries yep. that speak volumes to the world game that, that, that we're dealing with. But I will tell you that if I put three Asian-born players, three Korean-born players or, or from tai, Taiwan up there, uh, Yanni Sen being another one that, that comes to mind of somebody that I spent some time with, um, they speak great English, and they don't get mm-hmm. credit. And if you took about five American players and said, go live in Korea for you know right. five years and make that your homeland, I highly doubt that they would really take the time to learn the language. Now, I could be wrong, and I'm not trying mm-hmm. to you know throw fire on, on American players. That's not my point. Right. What I'm doing is elevating the stature of the Asian-born players who don't get enough credit for the great things that they do in the United States and making the uh, LPGA their home tour. And I'm a big, big fan. We can be fans of Lexi. We can be fans of, um, you know, the Corda sisters and all of that. Uh, Danielle Kang, wonderful. All Mm -hmm. of them are wonderful. But we have to give credit to the players from other countries. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we see, and I think that's why even more so on the women's tour, we're seeing such an explosion over the last several years of international players. And the one thing that I've always noticed, and I'm not going to get into specifics, but the one thing I always noticed with with U.S. players um, over past years, and I'm talking women's only, um, for a while there, there were a number that were more, and actually Nicholas actually pointed this out one time in an interview, and again, he didn't get into specifics, but he said, you know, when he was coming up, he went out on the golf course and proved himself first before he became a big name. And he said that he noticed that a lot of the younger coming up, and he was referring to the women's tour, that they were going out, it was more about the brand. It was more about developing a brand um, and becoming known for, you know, social media presence and so on and so forth before they even won a tournament. So it was kind of like the reverse, and he kind of pointed that out one time in an interview, and I started really thinking about that, and it was something that I noticed um, with a few of the players. And again, I'm not going to name names because I, I don't want to go down that path, but um, and I don't know whether you, what your thoughts are on that, but do you agree a little bit that maybe for a while, not all of them, but for a while there was uh, sort of a trend where it was more about let me get out there, let me market myself, um, but you know I haven't really done anything on the golf course yet. What do you think about that? Is that correct, do you think, in some fashion, or or am I off base? Well, I'll go ahead and name one player, and it's Ricky Fowler. Um, <laughs> but I'll, but I'll, maybe that's the name, one of the names you were going to throw out. But I'm going to tell you this right now. Um, I've spent a lot of time around Ricky Fowler when I was out there, and um, his agency was my agency for a while. Now, that mm-hmm. has nothing to do with the comment I'm about to make, but you won't find a classier guy in professional golf mm-hmm. than him. And I think his agents did a really good job of marketing him to a younger crowd to bring younger mm-hmm. people into the game. It couldn't all be about Tiger Woods. Um, you know, the orange clothes, right. the Puma, and all that sort of stuff was terrific. Has Ricky won enough? I don't know. That's debatable. It's not easy to win on the yeah. PGA Tour, period. Um, Ricky's won right. the Players' Championship. Ricky's won some pretty mm-hmm. big events. There was one year where he finished top five in all the majors, and he, he couldn't pull mm-hmm. it off. He may never win one, or he may land one, and you just never know when it's going to happen. Um, I sure hope right. he does because I, I can't think of another guy. Like if I was going to, if I so you're speaking of brand. So I've had this conversation mm-hmm. on my show too. So let's say that um, you can throw um, millions of dollars at only one PGA Tour player, and they're going to represent your brand for the next five to ten years in professional golf. Mm-hmm. Just just right. your logo is the only one on their on their clothing and everything else. And you're going all in, all your chips to the middle of the table on one player. Now, I will tell you that it would, for me, right now, be Colin Morikawa. 
Having said that, mm-hmm. if I was doing it a while back, it would have been Ricky Fowler. And if I was going to right. parade three players around to be spokespeople for the game, for the PGA Tour right now, I would still put Ricky Fowler among my top three, along with Morikawa. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd probably put Rory McIlroy on that list as well and say, go for it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that's how I feel about, you know, look, Jordan Spieth is, is terrific when he's sitting there talking um, to people about the game. Adam Scott is a wonderful ambassador for the game. There are so many of them. Do they need to build their brands? Hey, look, if we're, if we're all about golf, we can be critical if we want to, but do you feel like some of the PGA Tour guys, and I'm not throwing any shade here on Kevin Durant, but I'm just going to use his name, the, P, the, the mm-hmm. NBA and, and Major League Baseball and the NFL, they do not market the league. They market the stars. Right. Now, the difference is, is that they belong to teams and mm-hmm. golfers belong only to themselves. They are not paid by the PGA Tour um, as, uh, you know, employees. So it is up to themselves to build their own brand, to create their own following, right. to do what they have to do. So when people, you know, get critical of that, I, have, I, I say, hey, hold on, let's hit the pause button on that. And let's imagine mm-hmm. that you're going out there making a living. I'll talk about myself on this, okay? There could be people that say, yep. hey, good Lord, Craig can, you know, can advisory group. He's speaking in this town and he's doing a keynote here and he's got a workshop that he's mm-hmm. doing here. And he was just with this group. And last night he was at Stetson university speaking. And today he was at full sale university speaking and he's got pictures all over the place. Well, you want to know something? If I don't <laughs> find a way to toot my own horn or, or put myself out there as to who I'm you know, speaking with or, or what organization brought me in, nobody else is going to do that for me. And the only way that right. I get a check, or the next client is word-of-mouth marketing. So I need to mm-hmm. put myself out there. Now I have to do it strategically. I can't just talk all about me. I try to talk about the value that I bring to others and put them out there for what they say that my workshop does for their organization or my talk is done for them collectively in a, in a room. That's different, and I have to do it. So for anybody that says, boy, he's out there all the time, he pushes himself, hey, look, you know, that's how I make my living. And I don't have a $4 million marketing budget. I got to do it on my own. So I don't begrudge these guys for doing that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's – I agree. I mean, I think, you know, you have to do what, what, you know, what you feel is right for for your brand or your personality, if you will. Um, My my perspective from this was I was just wondering when you're comparing it to some of the European players or some of the Asian players, if – that in retrospect, if some of the American players, an example, and there are others too, but if they were more focused on brand building than actually winning golf tournaments, and that's what the point that Nicholas kind of re- referred to a little bit, is he was concerned that maybe they were more emphasized on building their name and their brand than actually going out right. and trying to, you know, get the whole. I that, get that's that. what I was getting at. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly I with what but you here's just said. The other part of that. Here's the other part of that. If we took all the American players and sent them overseas to Europe and said, you know, you're over there, um, I don't know that they'd be as big on building the brand because it's a cultural thing. That's not as big sure. of a deal over there as it is in the United States. Yeah. So, you know, you can say that Tommy Fleetwood isn't doing a good enough job building his brand here in the United States, and he ought to try to win more <laughs> golf tournaments, or, you know, you're going to slam, 
you know, Jordan Spieth or some of the others for signing big contracts right. and, and not doing the same. I just, I think we have to look at where they're playing, what they're doing, and, and take the bigger mm-hmm. picture of it. I've got no problem of it. The, the bottom line about brand is, is that the more you share, the bigger the brand becomes. And the less you share, the more mm-hmm. anonymous you're going to remain. So if you aren't winning golf tournaments or top 10 or top 25 or whatever it might be, um, you're not going to get a whole lot of notoriety. It's interesting because this past week, um, the main tour guest on my show uh, was Charles Howell III. And Charles mm-hmm. and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, he's one of my favorite people in the game of golf. He told some amazing mm-hmm. stories over a half hour. I actually blew through my stop sign at, at the, the bottom of the hour and went an extra eight minutes and, because he was that good. <laughs> Now, Charles Howell right. III, when I was promoting the show and saying, here's who's coming on Connected this week, um, he doesn't even have a Twitter handle. So, no. you know, but, he, but he's won about 50 or 60 or 70. I mean, I don't even know how many million dollars. You can look it up during our commercial break or whatever we're doing if we're just talking. Mm-hmm. He is amazing and, um, yep. and, and all of that. And so I, everybody does it differently. Everybody does it differently. And that is totally, totally fine. You don't have to love this player or that player. Um, they, if they don't win, chances are they're not going to stay out there very long either. So, it's, it's, you know, you're not going to have to worry about it too much. Yeah, and it's definitely a different time too. I mean, you know, back again, putting him on the on the uh, point here, you know, going back to Nicholas and Palmer and that generation, they didn't have the onslaught of social media. They didn't have the ability um, to, you know, push themselves out there in the same um, arena that we can now. So really their only way was to, to win golf tournaments, to be on television, to be in front of the camera more often than the guy beside them. So That's they really right. didn't have a lot of other That's avenues. Right. And, of course, they got into golf course design, and, and you know, Arnie, of course, did all kinds of commercials for Pennzoil and, and other products out there. So that's how he got in front of the camera in addition to his game. But um, interesting. I, just, I was just curious, an interesting perspective. All right, so we're going to – you did a great lead in there I uh, highly a few doubt, minutes back. I highly doubt, by the way, that Jack Nicholas is <laughs> – I highly doubt that Jack is sitting around. I know he tweeted out, you know, when, when Tiger yeah. was inducted, and I know he tweets out about this uh, and that, but I highly doubt he's saying, hey, Barbara, hang on a second. got to fire out this tweet, um, you know, yeah. before we go do whatever. <laughs> I think somebody's probably handling that for him and saying, what do you think, Jack? And then he tells them. But you're right. You nailed right. it. It's a different era. That was not around yeah. then. And um, and neither were cell phones, and neither were you know YouTube channels, and and uh, mm-hmm. all the other different things that we have. So it's just different. Yeah, they, I mean the game is is pretty much coming online now. You know, we, we had a guest Kelly Brook uh, on another show I do Tuesday mornings with Cindy Miller uh, called The Women of Golf, and we uh, interview a lot of the players, not just LPGA, but uh, uh, Epson Tour now and, and others. And you know, she mm-hmm. talked about this very thing. She's a professional. She uh, runs an operation up at uh, uh, Beth Page, and she was talking about this exact same thing about uh, the onslaught of electronics and social media and all this sort of thing, and how you know companies like Top Golf and all these other uh, entertainment value, if you will, uh, products are coming on the market, and how it's really changing the game. And you're seeing uh, a trend have actually for several years now, where the typical uh, country club. Uh, experience is getting smaller and smaller to the upcoming golfers. They don't care about that. They want to go out. They want to have fun. Uh, they want to be entertained. It's, uh, you know, let's party, let's do whatever. Um, and it's not that they don't enjoy 
playing golf, but they're not serious in some level, but they're not as serious as maybe 20, 30 years ago as players coming up. And I'm not talking professional, but I'm just talking, you know, your everyday weekend warriors. So it is a, a much different market in a way. And just look at even with this pandemic, the number of people that have come out to this game that never touched a golf club in their lives are suddenly being introduced to something because they had no choice. They were either stuck inside watching Netflix for the night or they get out in the golf course and try to learn a new game. And the numbers don't lie. I mean, people are coming out. And it's whether or not the industry is going to be forward enough thinking to say, what are we going to do to keep these players here? We can't just keep doing with the status quo. So, yeah, there's a lot of great points there. And, and I agree wholeheartedly. I think you have to pr uh, brand and market yourself in such a way that people remember who you are. Because if you're not going to win a lot of events, you may not be around too long. All right, I want to move on because well, I know let, we've got to talk about this. Let me just say this real yeah. quick. Real quick. Let yeah, me go ahead. 20 seconds on one statement. There's a difference in being known and chasing the idea of being known and a difference in chasing the idea of being knowable or noteworthy. And um, mm -hmm. being known is just how many followers can I possibly get? Being knowable right. means you bring value and you bring something to the table that, that makes you unique and different. And I used to tell the LPGA players when they would ride in to the press room and say, I shot 66. I'm really excited to do these interviews, top of the leaderboard. And I said, guess what? I hate to tell you this. Nobody cares. And I remember <laughs> right. saying, wait a second. What are you, what are you talking about? I, shot I said, let me tell you, you've got your name on your bag. My job is to help you figure out what your story is to make you noteworthy yep. so that tomorrow when a family comes out there with two kids, why are they going to take that T-sheet and go follow you for 25 minutes? What, what value will you bring? to the golf course, what memory, what memory will you make? What will you do to create a connection with a fan, uh, whether it's a picture, an autograph, or whatever else? What is your story? Who are you? Why should we pay attention? Why should we care? That's what you need to figure out because the 66 goes away in a heartbeat. Nobody remembers that, and nobody really truly cares about the two birdies you made at 13 and 14. They want to know about you, the person, mm -hmm. and that's what makes you relevant. Right. No, you're, you're, again, you're exactly right. It's funny, just real quick, and then we, I want to move on for you. Um, I was at the Q Series uh, for the LPGA this year. It was down here in Alabama. And um, I walked around, and I can't think of the young lady's name, but she's number one in Japan right now. And, again, she's just presented herself in such a way that, I mean, there were hordes of people following her around. She wasn't even near the top of the, of the, uh, the event um, and, and working towards her card. But, um, you know, she had an entourage of, you know, photographers from Japan that were following around, and then the fans were following around that were out there, you know, watching these girls, uh, you know, battle out for their cards. And it was just interesting because it goes to exactly what you're talking about is even though she wasn't near the top, um, she had a presence out there that people wanted to follow her. She was exciting. She was exciting to watch. Um, and, you know, obviously she had media from back home that were, uh, coming out to follow her, but uh, it was just interesting. It was uh, kind of an interesting, kind of goes to your point. All right, I want to talk about, obviously, the uh, CAN Advisory Group, um, and first let's talk about some of the things. What was your overall vision? Why did you, I mean, you've done so many other things. You've been a broadcaster. Uh, you do, obviously, your radio programs. Uh, you're an award-winning author. Um, was this something on your mind early in your career to uh, develop this uh, platform? and get out there and actually help other people? So that's such a great question. Um, and I could go in, in 20 different directions on this. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell the story of how, how it all became true. Um, number one, um, I wrote about it in the book, and the book is Can You Get Our Attention? 
which came out in 2021. I started it in mm-hmm. 2019. Um, back in 2008 and nine, the Golf Channel changed course, and um, mm-hmm. there were the market changed. We all know that um, there were there were a lot of things in the economy back then, and um, mm-hmm. Golf Channel was merging with Comcast and, and NBC, and all that stuff started happening. And a lot of people were being let go. And the long story short of it is two things happened. Number one, my contract was up that year. And instead of signing a four-year contract, which was offered to me two years prior, I signed a two-year contract. And my contract came up at the wrong time. So all of a sudden, I was Mm -hmm. in peril. And um, other people were let go. And I was told I was free to look. And people don't ever know that, but I did write about it in the book. And um, mm-hmm. and it was a bit jarring. It was a bit scary. And I remember sitting in the news in the uh, sorry in the uh, studio during the John Deere Classic uh, around that time. And I said, I, I got I got to think about this right now. I've got I've got some changes to make for me. Um, I'm I'm either going to end up staying at the Golf Channel, which I did ultimately for two more years, but um, mm-hmm. or I'm going to go do some other things. And I started writing a blog. And the blog was about all the things that I believed I had value in sharing my concepts, my ideas on, be it strategic communications, be it media coaching, be it um, media, be it uh, social media, be it, uh, you know, presentation skills. All those different things were things that I had ideas on. And I would sit down and I would handwrite 140-character um, little sayings and quotes that became my own. And they were tweetable, obviously. So anyway, mm-hmm. I started writing these blogs, and every blog, I wrote about 150 blogs, and um, every one of them was the potential chapter in a book. At that exact same time, I decided, um, the Golf Channel kept me, by the way. I ended up staying as mm-hmm. an independent contractor. I was no longer a full-blown employee um, starting in 2009, and I only worked four days a week. That was the contract I signed, and I was paid by the day. So what's weird about it is they brought me back, but they said, you're not a full-time employee. And I ended up having four days on the work schedule, not five. And I couldn't go to the Christmas party and I didn't have benefits. Now I said, Mm. well, what am I doing? Well, you're our main anchor. Now think about how that really makes sense. It really doesn't make sense, but that's the landscape that we were in. Things were changing. Okay, fine. So I had the best two years of my career from 2009 to 2011 on television. Having said that, I had one day a week to play with because I only worked four, and I started a business called HTK Media Consulting. Have the knowledge, HTK. That was my thing. Mm -hmm. It was also the initials of my kids, Haley, Trent, and Kendall. And I felt like if it ever became something, they would know that they were there in my mind when I started it. Now, I didn't get Mm -hmm. rich over the first year or year and a half, but I made about $55,000 in just being able to, control my own schedule, speak, consult, do different things one day a week and doing things for people. What it told me was, if this ever has to be my thing, I think I can do this. All right. So Mm -hmm. keep that in mind. I had two great years. Then all of a sudden, uh, Mike Wan gets named commissioner of the LPGA. He comes and he does an interview and they say, Craig, you're interviewing Mike. I interview Mike in 2010 and he's on his media tour. And at the end of it, I give him my HTK media card business card, not my, my uh, golf channel business card. I said, Mike, if you ever need any help on the consulting side, I've been play-by-play guy for LPGA. I've covered every tournament. I'd love to help you share mm-hmm. some things, maybe a media coach, whatever you need. He goes, I'm good right now. What I didn't know is he tracked me for the next year. 
And lo and mm-hmm. behold, in 2011, I got a phone call from him about um, during the U.S. Open when Rory McIlroy won at Congressional. And he said, Craig, this is way out of left field. Would you be interested in talking to me about being my chief communications officer? That's where that was born. So from 09 to 11, mm-hmm. I rebranded myself on the side one day a week and then took the job as LPGA's chief communications officer. Most people are like, why would you do that? You, you're, you're hosting live from and the main studio host. But I felt like jobs in the C-suite, and it wasn't director of communications. It was chief communications officer sitting in board meetings, having a real voice, traveling the world, helping players, building the awareness for the organization. Those things don't fall in the laps of guys that wear makeup and read teleprompters. So I felt like I needed to take that opportunity and run with it. So where does this all fit into me starting Can Advisory Group? I spent five years at the LPGA building presentations, doing consulting, if you will, with tournaments, um, helping players build their brands, teaching people in our organization how to share a story, present in front of a group, own a room, um, understand media, all the different things that I was able to do. And after five years in the Olympics in 2016, which I'm grateful for the opportunity to have been on the uh, communications committee for the Rio Games, I said, this is the time. There wasn't much more for me to do at the LPGA. It was a fabulous Mm -hmm. five-year run. I'm not talking to you here today if not for that. I don't have can advisory right. if not for my five years as chief communications officer. There's no way. So I'm grateful to Mike Juan for that opportunity forever, and I loved being a part of that organization. Um, but it gave me the confidence that I could go out there and do my thing. And so can advisory group was basically a rebrand of HTK Media at the end of 2016, to where I said, you know what, I'm going to start taking my power of presentation seminar, my this seminar, my that seminar, and I'm going to start building content that I can share with organizations and go out and do keynotes that I can now get paid for about how our careers don't go down a straight line. You need to be able to pivot. You need to figure out what your next might be before you actually need to have a next. And you need to go ahead and find your true passion, your true calling. And so, um, that's kind of where it all started, and I built um, everything around. If you look at the logo of Can Advisory Group, go to canadvisory.com, mm-hmm. you'll see the Elevate um, and the Mountain Peak, and that's really where this all started, and everything I do is about Elevate, elevating people, elevating brands, elevating events, um, elevating awareness. And so I've been incredibly fortunate. You know, I did, a, I did a keynote for SAP that got me off and running. KPMG then brought me in to do – a bunch of work with uh, their executives and communications on um, executive presence and presentation skills. I then did a, a, a big workshop um, for Diamond Resorts before they're now mm-hmm. Grand Vacations. They, they merged. Um, and Mike Flasky brought me in, and there were 30 executives. I did one. It went swimmingly well for eight hours, and the next uh, – it was like two days later, they hired me to do 12 more and then the next year they hired me to do 12 more. And I was off to the races at that point. And now I've got people like Transamerica and Accenture and Gallagher. And, you know, we can come up with all these companies. Titleist is a big client of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, tons in the space of golf because I love working with major golf organizations. And I do speaking for PGF America sections. And I, you know, just did a big talk for um, – for the Golf Course Owners Association, um, all their leaders um, and CEOs and presidents out at Monterey last year, 
one talk leads to four. If you do a great job, you know, and mm-hmm. you, you, you provide value, word-of-mouth marketing carries a long way. And that's really what's happened for me. Um, I started with zero. I really did. I started with zero, and now I'm, I'm as busy as I need to be, um, and I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, I'm not rich, but I'm rich with opportunity mm-hmm. and, and relationships, and I'm, I'm really proud of um, who I've been able to help and what I've been able to do as far as making an impact on people. Well, and, 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 you know, the interesting thing, Craig, is, is this. I look at, at someone's wealth as not so much what they necessarily have in their bank account, um, but the satisfaction they get from um, what they're doing uh, with their exactly. lives. And, and obviously, you can hear in your voice when, you know, I was listening. I, I listen very, very intently um, when my guests come on the show to, to things that they say and things that they don't say. And, it, you know, you can hear the passion in your voice that you're very um, – and it's not a pride of, well, hey, I did this for who and whatever, but it's just that you enjoy um, being able to take people, even in powerful positions, and show them a way that's going to impact them, not only personally, but also obviously impact their businesses. And so it brings me to this question is, what do you think, based on all the experience, not just as a broadcaster, but moving up into – what you're doing now, what are most people missing when it comes to preparing for their careers? Or is it the lack of preparation? Well, I'll second guess a lot of things about everything that I do. But one thing I will not second guess is preparedness. Nobody's going to out-prepare me or outwork me. Now, this may sound funny, but, you know, I do these workshops and I've got keynotes uh, in, uh, in Nebraska over the last couple of weeks. And I was in front of a group in Myrtle Beach uh, last week. I'm headed to San Diego next week or the week after. And um, mm-hmm. I, I don't rehearse my talks. I don't, I don't, um, I don't do a lot of rehearsals. I really mm-hmm. believe that when I build my slide content or my presentations, I think about a couple of things. Um, I think mm-hmm. about the impact of each slide that might be behind me on the audience in front of me. I think about the impact of mm-hmm. that and, and what they'll feel. And I think about how I'll feel with that behind me. And so when I put it all together, I make sure that I have a story. I mean, what we're really doing when we speak in front of groups or when we coach people to learn how to present, we're we're coaching them to present the best of themselves. You know, I don't tell people I'm going to make you the best public speaker in the world. I can't do that. I'm not going to make you the best presenter in the world. I can't even make you Mm -hmm. the best blogger or the best podcast host in the world. But I can promise you that if you give me a day and a half or you come to my workshop, mm-hmm. I'm going to set you well on your way to becoming your best presenter and your best public speaker because I'm going to figure out what your inner genius is and what your strengths are. Most people aren't mm-hmm. going to sign up for a class um, or a workshop on communication and presentation skills. They're afraid to get up in front of a room. They don't know how to own it, and they right. don't know where to begin. Um, it's the number one fear among all Americans. And number two is death. Mm-hmm. So think about that. Yep. People would rather be buried underground than be standing above ground talking about the life they lived before they got buried underground. And that's kind of the reality of it. My thing is I need people to die for the opportunity because some people never get it. And But they have to figure out what their story is. We buy people before we buy products. We buy people before we buy brands. We buy people before we buy workshops or, or webinars or seminars. So I, I am um, – look, I don't have a master's degree, all right? I don't. But mm-hmm. I do feel like I have one in people skills and communication and trying to make people feel good about what they do. 
And, um, and that's, that's what I love to do. I love to get people up there in front of a room and, uh, and figure out how they can become the best of themselves and, and learn to share their story and find the value in their story and how they can tie their personal story into the story of the organization. What I find is most companies do not have employees who understand the story of that organization. And the other problem mm-hmm. is most organizations are focused on employees when they need to be focused on creating ambassadors. And ambassadors mm-hmm. are the ones who can go wave a flag and understand the story and share that about the brand and then really make a difference. Um, that's the deal. Um, too many people today are focused on making a paycheck instead of making a difference. And uh, I try to change uh, mindset, and I try to change the ability to present. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you, you know, you talk about that your job is to engage, connect, and influence in a positive way, and more importantly, that delivers an emotional impact. Um, and and right. just like you were talking about with, with the slides behind you, is you're looking for the reaction of the people in front of you because that gauges yes. your way of responding. Um, because obviously, if they're you know got their hands or their head in their hands and they're falling asleep, um, it's not a matter of necessarily what you're saying is wrong, but it's not having an emotional impact with them. It's it's actually um, you know having a, a different reaction, and that's what you're looking for. Is you're you're essentially reading the room is you're looking to find out what it is that impacts them, what motivates them, and what gets them excited about what they're doing. And you're exactly right. I mean, you know, sales, I always say to people, you know, go and, and do uh, and work in a sales environment for even just a, a couple of years and really get yourself out there because you're, you're exactly right what you said earlier. Uh, a lot of people uh, have the number one fear is, is public speaking. Um, you know, what's interesting, and I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know whether this was applicable to you or not, but it was to me. Um, I was always extremely shy when I was growing up. And I've often found, and, and again, I'm not propping myself up here, but I've often found that some of the people that were ultimately became some of the most effective speakers or public you know, personas, if you will, were people that came from a, a, the opposite, a very shy background. Were you very shy? Were you like that yourself? Or maybe you were different, but were you a shy individual growing up? No. If anybody was listening that knew me as a kid, they'd start <laughs> laughing right now because I was the kid that was standing on the corner of my street telling them to get off my grass, and I wasn't even 70 yet. Um, you know, I, I, was always, uh, I was always a yapper. My, my parents would have uh, parties, dinner parties with other couples, and I'd be the kid that would go out mm. there and own the room when I was six or eight or whatever it was. I, right. I tell the story in my book, and I tell it in my, in my workshops because I, I feel like if I'm going to tell them that they need to tell their story, I'm going to give them a little head start and share my own, and I do it in a way with some, some pictures behind me, and, and I'm the kid that at eight years old knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sportscaster. That's all I wanted. My parents gave me a tape recorder and a microphone, and I was up in my room in suburban Chicago, mm-hmm. orange shag carpeting, by the way, in that room, which was pretty cool. Oh, and yeah. I, I did made up <laughs> play-by-play games of Bulls, Bears, Blackhawks, White Sox, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and I, was that, I was that kid. You know, if, if, if we're – it doesn't matter if we're on the golf channel. It doesn't matter if we're doing a radio show. Our job is to, is to keep people engaged. Um, I've mm-hmm. been in conferences uh, with a lanyard on. I've sat in rooms where they brought in a speaker or it was a career development day, and I left unfulfilled many times. And I always feel right. like when I'm looking at my audience, they're, they're saying three things to themselves. So what? Who cares? And what's in this for me? 
um, because mm-hmm. it's got to be about them. So whenever I'm doing a presentation right. or whenever I'm teaching people how to own a room or how to how to win the web, be it a, in a webinar, which is the new frontier, and, and I've got a whole seminar on that as well, um, mm-hmm. we have to we have to start with the audience forefront of our mind. I always begin everything with when they're gone. When they're gone, what will mm-hmm. they say? What do I want them to say about what I've said? What do I want them to do after I'm done? Because they will say something about me. They will say something about the experience. And my job is to control the narrative. And I've got to make it about them. I've got to connect with them. So there's a quote that I got from a professor when I was in college at the University of Missouri. And it was in broadcast journalism school. And he was talking about the package that we would air on the TV channel because um, we had KOMU and, and you were on the news your senior year in college, uh, the only school that owned and operated an affiliate TV station back then, which was pretty, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And the reason I went to Missouri, uh, but he always said, quote, you can't preach to anybody unless you can get them into the church. Now think mm-hmm. about that for a second. You might have the greatest podcast in the world, but if you don't have an audience and you, your message is going nowhere. Now I don't need 800 right. people in a room for me to be successful and have people create word of mouth marketing. I might only need eight if I have the right eight. It's not the size of the mm-hmm. room that matters. It's the size of your message. Now I do right. not go and do a talk. Um, and just wing it. I work it. And I know exactly mm-hmm. what I'm trying to accomplish. If you look at my website, if you know anything about what mm-hmm. I do, you know I give out a green shoe. And there's a whole concept behind the green shoe. And somebody got a green shoe last night at Spetson University. And someone got a green shoe a couple of weeks ago in Lincoln, Nebraska. And someone got one in Myrtle Beach the other day. And somebody's going to get one in San Diego coming up. But they're going to earn it. And it's, it's a whole mentality of how people stand out when they stand up. And um, so, uh, look, I try, to, I try to give corporate executives and teams and uh, organizations a simple concept that they can grasp onto that will make their head spin for an hour or however long they're with me, but will get them to go out the door with actionable steps that they can change that will raise the economic value of the organization and themselves. And the last thing that I would say, you brought up sales. You know what? We're Mm -hmm. all in sales. You don't think I'm selling right right now? I'm selling myself. (laughs) I'm selling my information. I'm selling my theories. I'm selling my organization. You're selling your podcast. You're selling your knowledge Mm -hmm. on golf. We are all in sales. And, um, And it's really important that people adopt that thought process because um, being able to sell yourself in, in a presentation way and owning communication, uh, Warren Buffett says 50% greatest, greatest way to add 50% of value, economic value to your career is to be proficient and really good at communication and public speaking. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. The Dale Carnegie Institute says that 85% of our wealth comes from human engineering, quote unquote, meaning how mm-hmm. are you when it comes to communication and being able to deliver. Only 15% of our wealth comes from our knowledge, the things we went to school for, our training. It's right. all about how we connect with people, period. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, you know, you talk about you're only as good as your story and the way you present it. And you're exactly right. If you look, if you go back in time to some of the early pioneers in business, most of them didn't even finish high school. So it's not a matter, and right. I'm not criticizing anybody, right. by the way, that's listening. Don't send me hate mail and saying, well, what are you saying? We don't need to go to college or high school or what have you. 
Um, no, I'm not saying that. I mean, there's there's value and benefits in, in all of that. Um, but some of the the earlier pioneers, especially here in the United States, um, many of them never graduated high school, but they were able to communicate whatever their message may be, and they were able to tell their story. I mean, look at Henry Ford as an example. I mean, you know, the Ford uh, company went bankrupt several times, and look at them today. I mean, you know, they're uh, so. I mean, right. you know, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I agree with you. I agree I'm with sorry, you I thought you were going to. I'm sorry. Exactly what you're saying. Look, look, we fight for business cards and titles, and everybody's all into all that. And you know, I can call myself whatever I want. I run my own business. I, I put managing director. I thought CEO sounded really, you know, snobbish. And president, who cares? I mean, they know I founded it. It's got my name on it. So, you know, what, what we need is everybody to wake up in the morning on their card. It should say entrepreneur. And, and what do I mean by that? Yep. I mean that we need to adopt mm-hmm. an entrepreneurial mindset that we're going to be able to take an idea, have no fear that it might fail, and be able to push it across the finish line and get people to pay attention to it. You know, that, that's, that's tied to my book, Can You Get Our Attention? It's a funny thing. You know, uh, when I wrote the book and I, I had an agent help me with the pitch, I wrote the pitch. He put it out there. We sent it to 30-some publishers. You don't know if anybody's going to say yes. Right. You just don't. Right. And um, mm-hmm. eight out of 31 or whatever said, we're all in. We narrowed it to four. We interviewed the four. I was thrilled with eight. I couldn't even believe it. And the fact that we were talking to four was mind boggling. We settled on one. And um, Kathy Teets is her name, headline books. And they, they took a flyer on me. And she was in love with my story and, and, and what I could potentially do. She liked my pitch. And she told me, now, as far as your title, just write the book. I go, no, 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 no. I have the title. She said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. It's called Broadcasting Your Story. She said, write the book. That won't be the title of your book. I go, no, it will be Broadcasting Your Story. I'm telling you right now. She goes, just write the book and then get back to me. I wrote the book. I called her up. I said, Kathy, I'm wrong. You're right. It's not Broadcasting Your Story. It's called Can You Get Our Attention? She loved it. And the rest is history. Top 25 Amazon bestseller. And it it ended up winning awards that, that, uh, you know, Book of the Year at the, the New York Book Festival, San Francisco Book Festival, and Paris Book Festival, and it's top five international book awards. I mean, like things I never thought would happen, but the premise mm-hmm. of the book is can you get – we live in a distracted society. I mean, like everybody yeah. is yapping. Everybody's talking. Can you actually have something worthy of people's attention? Can you – have a message worth following? Can you get people emotionally connected to hear what you have to say and go tell somebody else? I mean, that's what Mm -hmm. it really boils down to. And so can you get our attention is really based on different strategies and things that I talk about, whether you use the platform of, of media coaching or social media or strategic branding or strategic communications, all the different things that I'm an alleged expert in. These are my teachings, but then storytelling is huge. And I felt like if I'm going to mm-hmm. coach people on the value of sharing your story, I better share my own. So I weave my own story, start to finish all the successes, but all the failures, because we, we learn a lot more from our failures. I guarantee you your greatest successes yep. in your life, personal, professional did not come from inside your comfort zone. They come from outside our comfort zone. And, um, and so people need to, to understand that there's great value in failing. And uh, that goes back to the entrepreneur thing. You've got to be able to get an idea and, and move it across the finish line and get other people to buy in. No, you're exactly right. And what a great way to end 
the program. Um, Craig, I want to thank you and I uh, want to give that website out. It's canadvisory.com. It's K-A-N-N advisory.com. You can get all t- uh, Craig's contact information there. Um, any final thoughts before we uh, close out? I'll leave you with this. Um, I uh, get to do a lot of really cool things, be it workshops, interviews, keynotes. And a lot of people I hear say, I have to go deliver a talk. I have to go deliver a speech. I have to go to a meeting. Um, I work with Mm -hmm. a lot of people on shifting their mindset to be able to say, I get to. And so what I'm going to say to you is, is that some people might say, uh, Craig had to go do this podcast tonight or this interview tonight. (laughs) And I'll say, no, I got to do it. And so for that, I thank you. I appreciate the time, Uh, the fact that you Mm -hmm. cared enough. Uh, to reach out to me and and book me as a guest means a lot. Um, I'm grateful, and I thank you so much. Uh, You know, it means a lot. Well, I appreciate it, and I've enjoyed uh, listening to you, and you're you're exactly right in everything that you shared with the audience tonight, and I know that that they've enjoyed it and uh, will continue to enjoy it. And I hope you'll come back and and join me again on a future show. Um, We'll set that up at a later time, but uh, I'd love to have you come back on. You can share share some... You could share some tiger stories and and uh, maybe some uh-huh. other things. We'll talk a little more. We'll talk a little more golf too. Uh, but uh, but thank you, Craig. I appreciate you. And thanks to John Decker for uh, helping to arrange this. I know you're familiar with him, and uh, uh, I appreciate this. So quick shout out to him for for connecting us and that. But but thank you very much for coming on. I I appreciate uh, our discussion tonight. And again, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, for those who follow on Twitter, it's at Craig Can with two Ks. And hit me up, and uh, we'll, we'll create some, some following for this podcast. You did a great job. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great weekend. You got it. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest, Craig Can. Uh, again, you can go to canadvisory.com is his website, all of his contact information there. Uh, great individual, obviously, uh, uh, has done a lot in his career and wants to help all of you out there, uh, especially you uh, entrepreneurs out there that want to get uh, uh, your mind in uh, a right mo- mode, if you will, to uh, succeed and be successful, not only as a business person, but as, as an individual. This is the guy that's going to do it for you. So go to canadvisory.com. That's K-A-N-N advisory.com. All right, I appreciate uh you guys for tuning in tonight. Thank you as always. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, again, a special thanks to Brian Dobby and Paul Castor for joining me uh, here on the Coach's Corner panel earlier on. And once again, a uh, very special thanks to my special guest this evening, uh, founder of the Can Advisory Group, Craig Can. I will see you next week with another Coach's Corner and another insightful interview with my special guest. God bless everybody and have a great week. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.